Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. We all can't help but wonder what adventure lies just over the next ridge. A Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada will take you there. If you're taking on your adventure in a new 2024 Nissan Rogue, class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the 2024 Nissan Rogue. Nissan's SUV has the capabilities to take you where you want to go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I would be lost without my smartphone. I use it for directions, to find things to do, and most importantly, where to eat. I rely on it as a digital music player to enhance my experience as I explore a new place. Oh, and sometimes I even use it to make calls and stuff. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Volkelbaum. And, uh... You know, something hit the news recently. You may have seen it. In fact, you may have seen it in multiple places about a a program, a computer program, passing the Turing test. Possibly the first such program to ever pass the Turing test. Ever! And we had planned on doing an episode on this. And then, on top of that, uh, one of our listeners, Nick, on Twitter, said, Just saw this headline on Google News. A computer just passed the Turing test in Landmark Trial. So we knew that the the timing was perfect. Thank you, Nick, for writing in. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are really ready to talk about this. But in order to do that, it's important that we, you know, kind of lay some groundwork. So first of all, the Turing test is named after Alan Turing. Mm -hmm. And we've done a full episode on Alan Turing way back when. Uh, Back in November of 2010. Yeah. A phenomenal person. Uh, Amazing thinker. Yeah. uh, One of the, like, the grandfather of computer science. Uh, also, tragic life story, which we went into detail uh, back in that story. And so you might wonder, well, all right, so what does that have to do? What is the the guy who was the, the essentially the father of computer science or grandfather of computer science? What does he have to do with the story about uh, a, a computer program in June 2014? Uh, a computer program with an interesting name, Eugene Gustman, uh, passing the Turing test. Uh, what does that all have to do with each other? Well, to answer that, we have to ask, what is a Turing test. Well, as it turns out, way back in the 1950s, he started envisioning a, a thought experiment. Yeah. He published a paper in a journal called Mind in 1950 called Computing Machinery and Intelligence. And he sort of laid out his thought experiment there. And it's interesting because what he did was he took this idea of a, a party game and then adapted it for computers. Uh, right. The The party game that it's based on would have three participants, an interrogator, a man, and a woman, um, all situated so that they can't see one another. And the interrogator is supposed to ask questions um, to try to figure out 
which of the participants is the dude and which is the lady. Exactly. And it's the dude's job to try and mislead the interrogator to believe that that he, in fact, is the lady and the other one is the man. It's the lady's job to say, uh, hey, I want you to get this right. I'm the lady. That other guy, that's the dude. Uh-huh. And so the interrogator has to ask questions. Now, obviously... They can't see each other because if they could see each other, then that would probably give things away. Probably. They really shouldn't be able to hear each other because that could also give things away. Sure. And if you use handwritten notes, then uh, the interrogator might be able to make judgments based on the handwriting style. So it should really be typewritten. Right. So you want to you want to remove as many easily identifiable traits from this game as possible to make it all about the questions and the answers. Now. Turing said, what if we were to take the same basic premise, but instead of having two human uh, interviewees, replace one of those humans with a machine? Now, if that machine can convince the interrogator that the machine itself is a human being, it would be a pretty phenomenal achievement. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, just generally, if the interrogator wasn't sure which of the two yeah. Interrogatees. Right. Uh, well, yeah, which one's the human? Which one's the machine? Or even if uh, there could be a case where you don't know, it may be that you have two humans that you're interrogating. And it may be one of those things where you have to, you know, if you don't know for a fact that one of them's a machine, that makes it even harder. Right. Mm-hmm. At least assuming that the computer program is sophisticated enough. Now, Turing was saying that we don't have any machines right now that can do this, but I envision a time when computers will be able to do such a thing, where if you were to interrogate a computer, you would get back responses that would be uh, convincing enough for it to make it difficult to determine if it were man or machine. And so he said that he predicted in 50 years time, which would be the year 2000, that computers and software would be sophisticated enough that interrogators would only be able to guess correctly 70% of the time. Uh, Meaning they would be fooled by the computer 30% of the time. Right. So... Uh, this was just kind of a, a thing he was coming up with, like an idea, a prediction, not necessarily a test, although very much like Moore's observation became Moore's law, this became what is known as the Turing test. People talk about the Turing test uh, as a machine capable of fooling people into thinking it's another person at least 30% of the time. Uh, after five minutes of conversation. Very good point. Yes, it, it needs to be five minutes of conversation. If you are just getting maybe two or three responses that might not be enough for you to be able to draw a conclusion that you feel good about. Uh, if after five minutes you still are not entire, entirely certain, then that might say uh, that this machine, in fact, has passed the Turing test. Mm-hmm. And this has been extrapolated to mean something about machine intelligence because Turing himself tied the idea of uh, of how we perceive a machine's intelligence directly to artificial intelligence. Yeah, and and, and even how we perceive human intelligence. Because here's Turing's idea. It was a little cheeky, and I love the fact that it's so cheeky. So Turing kind of said, would you say such a machine is intelligent? If it appears to be intelligent, is it fair to say that it is intelligent? Turing said, why not? Because I'm only able to tell that I am intelligent. Right. Because of my experience, I'm only able to have my own personal experience. I can't experience what someone else's life is like. Uh, Right. Sitting across from each other, Jonathan and I can only assume that the other one is intelligent. Right. And it's because the other person is displaying traits that we associate with intelligence. Uh, They they seem to be able to take in information, respond to it, make decisions. And based on the fact that we ourselves also do that thing, we go ahead and say, all right, well, they clearly have the same uh, features that I have, which includes intelligence. Uh, now, he says, why do, would we not extend that same courtesy to a machine if it also appeared to display those same uh, features? He says it doesn't matter if the computer is, quote unquote, thinking. If, it's, if it can fool you. Yeah, if it's able to, to simulate it well enough, you might as well say it's intelligent. Because simulate you, is probably a kinder phrase yeah. for that than fool, yes? Yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, no, it's, it is fooling, essentially. I mean, because ultimately, you're talking about a computer programmer mm-hmm. who's making this happen. So nowadays, we think of this as the Turing test. Can a machine, 30% of the time or more, fool someone after five minutes of conversation into thinking it's a human? Now... This is really hard to do. This is yeah. This is non-trivial. 
I mean, it, it sounds almost simple. Yeah. The concept is simple. The execution, incredibly difficult. Because uh, here's the thing. Human language varied. We have oh, yeah. unstructured, unpredictable ways to say things. Like, if, if I were to tell you that it's 100 degrees outside and it is 90% hum- humid, like that humidity is at 90%, and you go out there, then I'm sure all of our listeners would have slightly different ways to express their thoughts on the conditions outside. Some of them would probably contain colorful metaphors. Probably. Uh, mine very likely would contain <laughs> colorful metaphors, particularly if I had to be outside for any length of time. But that's the point. We would all have different ways of saying this. So how do you make a computer program able to interpret all the the myriad of ways we could all express the same thought, let alone any thought? Right. This is what's referred to as natural language recognition. And it's a really huge problem in artificial intelligence yes. and, and, and a lot of other speech related computer programming. Exactly. Yeah. This is where a computer program has to be able to parse the language. So it recognizes things like this word is a noun. This word is a verb. This, this word alters this other word. Uh, and not only does it need to be able to recognize it, it needs to be able to respond in kind, right? So if you had... Appropriately in some way or another, sure. Yeah, you could have a computer program that's literally making up sentences or, you know, the approximation of a sentence randomly, where it's just pulling strings of words and placing them in a sequence and then presenting them. But that wouldn't be convincing at all. If I were to say, hello, how are you today? And Lauren was to say, blue panther pickup jump down street. I'd be like, what? <laughs> and even that was closer to being a sentence than some of the random stuff that you would see if it was just truly you know, completely r- Right. So it also has to be able to uh, endure a five minute long conversation, like we said, in order to pass the Turing test. So you can't have too much repetition or oh, that right. gives it away. Oh, absolutely. If you've ever been playing a video game and all of the NPCs say the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah. If if all the chatbot says is, hey, listen then you're clearly playing Zelda and you're not actually having a a decent conversation. That being said, there is someone I know who plays a fairy at the Georgia Renaissance Festival and Hey Listen is heavily represented in her repertoire. (laughs) Um, It's pretty amazing. No, it's pretty awesome. But at any rate, yeah, so so these are these are big problems. You have to build a database of of words. You have to be able to figure out uh, what kind of syntax are you going for. It's a wide open, huge problem. And Solving this problem can be really beneficial in lots of ways. We'll talk a little bit about that later. It's mm-hmm. it's beyond just making a program that seems human, right? That's that's one way of looking at it. But there are a lot of other benefits that come along with it, which we'll chat about toward the end of the show. Uh, but for right now, let's go into this story behind Eugene Gustman and whether or not it was actually the first chatbot to pass the Turing test. Yeah. So first of all, we've got three programmers in this story. Uh, Vladimir Veselov, Eugene Demchenko, and Sergei Yulison. Uh, as you may guess from their names, uh, they all hail from uh, Russia and uh, the Ukraine as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, although not all, the, not all of them still live there, but starting in uh, 2001, they got to work on this, right? Yeah, they were trying to design a computer program that would pose specifically as a 13-year-old boy from Odessa in the Ukraine. Yeah, and that meant that they had specific parameters that they could work within. It automatically uh, helped reduce some of that unpredictability and that lack of restriction that you would have if you were to just say, this is a fluent adult speaker of a given language. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Giving him these, you know, setting up the expectation from the judges that, you know, this is a non-native English speaker. It's it's a kid. Yeah. Essentially, Um, you know, they'll expect him to have limited knowledge of the world and and different subject areas mm-hmm. and a limited understanding of English vocabulary and grammar and yes. all of that kind of stuff. So you're already managing expectations. That's going to come into play when we talk about some of the criticisms about this. Although although I do think it's a very clever way and and a lot of previous chatbots have have, have had similar yeah, similar approaches. kind of yeah. approaches. Yeah. Because like we said, if you're to take a quote-unquote pure approach to this, it's really really challenging. So, yeah, by by limiting this, the judges 
have an idea of, well, this this could be a 13-year-old boy or it could be a computer program. It means that the computer program doesn't have to be as sophisticated as one that would be completely fluent and have, um, you know, an adult's experiences uh, and ability to communicate. So that was step one. And uh, Eugene Guzman took part in a competition uh, that had five total chatbots. It was it was one of, of five uh, that took place on the 60th anniversary of Turing's death. And the program managed to fool 33% of the judges into thinking it was actually a person. Uh, and it had, there were 30 judges from what I understand. So that was where you got all the headlines of chatbot or a computer beats Turing test, which already is not accurate. There were some slight, um, Hiccups in a little bit of the news reporting, yeah. but we'll get into that part of the story later. Yeah. But you know, the key takeaways I think here are that, uh, this was a, this was a competition that was yep. celebrating touring. Yep. Awesome. Yes. Um, and that there were, uh, 30 judges, some of whom were celebrities. Yes. Including a, uh, an actor who had appeared on Red Dwarf. Right. Yes. Yep. And then a couple of years before that, because uh, because you said they started working on this on 2000 in 2001. This was not the first time that Guzman had entered competition. Uh, two years previously, that same software had convinced 29 percent of judges at a similar competition that was held at Bletchley Park. Now, but Bletchley Park, that's where Turing helped crack the Enigma machine, uh, the the encoding device that the German military was using during World War Two. So. This was a big celebration. It was at the uh, centennial celebrating his birth. And it ended up falling just short of passing the Turing test. At that 29%. 29%, yeah. yeah. Uh, the organizer of the the more recent event, the one in which Guzman ran away with, quote unquote, beating the Turing test, uh, that organizer was Kevin Warwick. Uh, that name may sound familiar to some of our listeners if you've ever heard us talk about Cyborgs. He's uh, the guy who uh, had an RFID chip uh, surgically implanted into him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe his wife also did at one point. Yes, uh, they they could communicate with each other through them. Uh, yeah. Some unflattering news media sometimes refers to him as Captain Cyborg. Yeah, there there are some uh, critics who say that he uh, he courts publicity in a manner that is um, unbecoming. Of, of, of a scientist, yes. Really of anybody, but oh. yes, yes. Uh, those, those are the critics who say that, by the yes. way. I mm-hmm. just want to make that clear. Yes. Uh, at any rate, he said that this was the first time a chatbot had passed the Turing test at an event where the conversation was open-ended, meaning that they had not previously uh, decided upon a specific topic or line of questioning that the judges were allowed to say whatever they wanted to the chatbot and uh, get responses. Which obviously makes it harder because you have to have a much wider breadth of um, potential like, responses. Sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, because, yeah. again, if you were to say, all right, this chatbot is just going to talk about, um, I don't know, sporting events from last year. Well, then you've you can prepare pretty well for that. Yeah, right. exactly. So it's one of those, again, it's one of those things where the unrestricted nature adds in a degree of difficulty. So why would you need to make the qualification that this is an open-ended approach and this is the first chatbot to have managed it? That would be because, despite what you may have heard, Eugene Guzman was not the first program to beat the Turing test. Uh, not by a long shot. So work on these sort of chatbots, these kind of artificial conversationalists, that's real recent, right? I mean, they just started doing that, like what, like like maybe three or four years ago, um, or 2001 at the earliest. I mean, that's when they started with Guzman. Uh, yeah, no, in the 1960s and 70s. Say what? Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, back in the mid 1960s, there was Eliza. Yes. Which was written by Joseph Weizenbaum. Yep. If you're pronouncing it in the correct German. That is correct. Yeah. Excellent. I'm, I'm sh- finally learning. I'm sure. I'm sure he pronounces it Weizenbaum, but <laughs> I, yeah. But no, it would be Weizenbaum. At any rate, yes. um, so, <laughs> this this was a program um, that would respond to human conversation in what ideally would be a relevant way. Yes, it was a obviously an early attempt. It was not meant to be a a program that takes on the Turing test. It was really a thought again, kind of like a thought experiment. The idea of what does it take to create a piece of software that can react to questions yeah. and make it make sense? At, at that point, it was more a can we do this than let's do this for real. Yeah. And, and these are the sort of 
foundations that you have to lay in order for other things like the, mm-hmm. the Eugene Guzman program to be uh, uh, successful. Yeah. So he created a language analyzer. Now, this specifically would look at words that users would put in and then compare them against a database of words that were stored in the computer's memory and then also created scripts. Now, in this case, the scripts were sets of rules. They're kind of like, you know, like a protocol or an algorithm in a way. These rules dictated how Eliza would respond to messages in order to cut down on that huge, massive number of variables we were talking about, that that whole unrestricted, unpredictable thing. Mm -hmm. And so they would have different uh, kind of like like overlays. Think of them as an overlay that would kind of uh, guide Eliza's responses. And the most well-known one was called Doctor, which put Eliza in the role of a Rogerian psychiatrist. Uh, this is the person who responds to everything with a question. Uh, right. It's that it's that passive interview style yes. where where, you know, you repeat back. You yeah. know, if, if, if I go, oh man, like I'm, I'm, re- I'm really sad about my cat. Oh, well, tell me, what is it about your cat that makes you sad? That kind of And then of you thing. can say things like, you know, and then it's one of those things like, uh, where as a conversation starts to wind down, you then have another line of questions like, so tell me more about your mother. Like that, <laughs> the, the whole tell me about your mother thing, that's really coming back to this kind of model of psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if you've ever heard the joke about them responding to anything with another question, Someone just might just say, taking like, the last word and turning it into a question. Right, like, what, what am I paying you for? Why do you think you're paying me for? <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, so that's what, that's how Eliza responded. And in fact, you can find, uh, examples of the Eliza, uh, program. Transcripts. Yeah. yeah? Or oh, transcripts and even, even the actual, there's, there, there are, uh, ports, you could say. Or people have essentially created their own version of Eliza just using the uh-huh. original Eliza as a guide. You can find tons of them on the web. And you can attempt to have a conversation with them. It's not terribly compelling, but it, it's it's kind of fun. Usually within maybe four or five exchanges, you've already run into something where you're like, well, this can't be a That's person. Wiggy, yeah. Uh, or if it's a person, it's the weirdest person I've ever <laughs> conversed with. Uh, but, but again, it wasn't really an earnest attempt to, to create uh, something that would past the quote-unquote Turing test. Right. Which I don't think was being referred to as such at that point yet. Yeah, it was kind of a... I mean, people knew about Turing's prediction, but it wasn't so much called a Turing test. Yes. But another chatbot that premiered in the early 1970s went even further and actually was an attempt to try and pass the Turing test in a very specific approach. Kind of like, you know, Eugene Guzman is a very specific approach to narrow down that those parameters in this case, this one was called Perry, P-A-R-R-Y. Uh, right. And Kenneth Colby created it to to emulate a patient who has paranoid schizophrenia. Yeah. Someone who has, you know, sort of a persecution complex. Uh, they they imagine that that there are uh, people or other entities that are out to get them. And in this uh, specific case, he he kind of he kind of really embraced this approach, it, it reminds me of people who create a, um, like a Dungeons and Dragons character, but then give their character an entire backstory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this Perry persona was an entire persona. It was a 28 year old man with a job as a post office clerk who was single, had no brothers and sisters, and rarely saw his parents. He right. had specific hobbies. He liked to go to the movies and. Oh, he, horse racing. Yeah, he liked to bet on the horses. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he, and in he, fact, he placed a bet with bookies in the past. Right, and that. He realized later bookies have an association with the criminal underworld and that therefore the mafia knew about him and, and were out to get him. Yeah. Now, now all of that might sound very ridiculous to you. If you never had any kind of um, interaction with someone who suffers from paranoid schizophrenia, that can seem like, well, that seems cartoonish. But no, this this kind of thinking is not uncommon. Sure. You know, whether it's whether it's a criminal organization or the government or some other even unnamed entity? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's it's very much realistic in terms of that kind of diagnosis. And and if I was speaking about it with humor in my voice a moment ago, it's it's only because I am absolutely tickled that the programmers of of this of this program built it in. built it in. Yeah, no, like I mean that. it's it's actually pretty entertaining that they went so far as to make this whole uh, this whole backstory to explain it because that's what gives it the believability, right? right? And then they ended up testing it. Uh, in conversation with a human, Perry would gradually start to introduce his thoughts, quote unquote, 
thoughts about being persecuted and would respond sensitively to anything said about his appearance, family or religious beliefs. Uh, I've actually seen lots of transcripts of conversations with Perry. And sure enough, it's one of those things where, you know, you, you might have a few exchanges and then Perry ends up saying something that seems really odd, but not so odd as to seem artificial. It just seems like it's a non sequitur. Right. You know, something like, well, that's what they want you to think. And if you were to say, who are they? The mafia. Who did you think I was talking about? <laughs> like you, the mafia are after you? So of course they're after me. They know who I am. That kind of stuff. And it's disturbing. Like it's, uh-huh. it, you know, when you know what it is, it's kind of amusing. But like if you're in the middle of a conversation, you're like, oh, um, this poor person. Yeah. yeah. And so in order to test it, uh, Colby did a couple different things. He did one test where eight psychiatrists interviewed both Perry and a human patient via teletypewriter. So in both cases, the uh, the the psychiatrist could not see who they were interviewing. This is going back to the kind of the original Turing test idea, mm-hmm. or at least Turing's proposed experiment. And in this case, only two out of the eight were able to identify that one of the interviewees was human and the other was a machine. In a second test, Colby presented a group of 100 psych- psychiatrists almost said psychics, uh, transcripts of interviews between Perry. That would change and, the game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, he had, he had pairs of, tra- <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I foresee. No, but he, they gave these psychiatrists, uh, transcripts of interviews between, uh, an interviewer and Perry and an interviewer and a human patient. And 40 out of the 100 responded. I don't know if the other 60 just never got it or if they didn't. Yeah, response rates are variable. Right. So out of the 40 who responded, 19 of them guessed incorrectly. So that's almost a 50%. Yeah. You know, know, right up there with a a, a pretty impressive amount. Now, again, we have to look at the fact that Perry is operating under a very restricted uh, set of rules. We're talking about paranoid schizophrenic, someone who we would assume would occasionally would answer have non-normative answers exactly to conversational pieces, right? Yes. And and again, it's it's a limited time that you're having with this person or this entity in this case, this this program, and uh, because the psychiatrists had a specific expectation of the type of interactions they were going to see, that could have affected their their uh, answer, mm-hmm. right? So, ideally. In the perfect situation, you would have this interview happening where you have no expectation as to what the answers should be. In other words, you don't know ahead of time that the interviewee is having any kind of other, you know, any kind of restrictions upon that person. So that you would be interviewing anyone, like any average person. Uh, but that's obviously not what we're talking about here, nor was it the one for Eugene Guzman. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I've also seen, by the way, transcripts of people who set up Eliza and Perry to talk to each other. Oh, no. <laughs> so you have Eliza acting as the Rogerian psychiatrist and Perry, the paranoid schizophrenic, having bizarre conversations. And they usually don't last very long because Perry gets upset. <laughs> and if, obviously, by gets upset, I just mean that Perry ends up essentially shutting down the conversation because... Eliza just wants to ask questions and Perry gets suspicious of people who are asking questions. And by, again, get suspicious, I'm saying following specific rules that make it feel like this Uh computer program is getting suspicious. Right. But they are entertaining. If you ever uh, do a search online, just look for Eliza Perry transcripts. There there are a few of them and they're all pretty entertaining. Uh, but so since since that time, I mean, obviously, the lots and lots of chatbots have been created. Yeah, uh, for multiple reasons. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, s- some of them are trying to test the Turing test yep. and others are trying to fool you into uh, giving out your credit card information or on clicking the on a link that has malicious mm-hmm. uh, links to malicious software. Yeah. <clears throat> Anyone who's been on uh, any kind of chat program, specifically like AIM, Mm-hmm. has probably encountered this at least once or twice where they're, they're getting an unsolicited message from someone or and, something or yeah. something. Yeah. And if you type a couple of times, you realize, oh, this is not actually this is a, not real a person. person. This is an attempt for to either get information from me or have me click on a link. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a thing. But there are some examples of uh, I guess saying legitimate is weird, but there are some examples of other. Uh, more more scholarly attempts. Yeah. Like a um, PC therapist. 
Yeah. Uh, that one was by Joseph Weintraub. Yep. Back and, in 1991. Mm-hmm, and it fooled 50% of its judges into thinking that it was human. Yep. Uh, 50% of 10 judges, yeah. of course. So if, I, if I'm doing my math correctly, that's five. That I believe you are, unless we're talking about quantum judges. That's true. <laughs> um, <laughs> These judges were both right and wrong at the same time. <laughs> and, um, and, and it was, it was a whimsical program, I guess you could say. Yeah, it had come some, I think it's fair to say its answers could be pretty smart ass. Uh, also, I, I read some of these transcripts and, and it actually surprised me that enough judges thought that it was a person. Maybe they thought it was a person who was purposefully attempting to fool them into thinking it was a computer. Huh. You know, because it would say things like, I compute, therefore I am, that kind of stuff, where it was specifically oh, making I remember these sort that of statements. One. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at this stuff and you're thinking, all right, well, maybe this is kind of going back to that original Turing test party game where mm-hmm. the, the effort is for a person, like the person who's being interviewed is trying to throw everybody off. And that's perfectly within the rules unless you state up front, no, just be honest in your in your answers. There's nothing in here, by the way, that says that the interviewee has to tell the truth necessarily unless you just state oh, sure. that as a parameter at the beginning. Right. So in other words, you could you could be like, I'm totally the computer and you're the, the human being interviewed. Uh, I don't know if that's a fair way of saying <laughs> that the device won or lost, but it is a possibility. Uh, then we have a uh, 2011. Now, this one's a really pretty impressive one. And this was Cleverbot, which was made by uh, a fellow named Rollo Carpenter, and it fooled 59.3% of a live audience at an event in India. With more than a 1,000 people. Yeah. it. Uh, the way this worked was that the audience watched as interviewers interacted via text with either Cleverbot or a human uh, in the course of a four-minute interview. So it's a little shorter than what Turing had said. But not by not by a whole lot. Uh-huh. I mean, four minutes is still well, a good amount of time. Sure, that that is twenty percent less. That's true. That's true. So keep that in mind. But but at any rate, it was a you know pretty interesting experience. It also, from what I read, they misidentified. Uh, they thought that the human was a computer sixty three percent of the time, <laughs> um, because they didn't necessarily just say that it was a computer or it was a, sure. a clever bot. So. Now we see that there are a few examples of chatbots, quote unquote, passing the Turing test. So what does that mean? Does it mean that the machines are actually thinking? Um, no. Oh, bummer. <laughs> I mean, and, and it's not to say that, that computers don't have a certain amount of machine intelligence, but there is absolutely a distinction between that and what we consider to be human intelligence. That's true. Pro- the programmers themselves have said that this doesn't mean a machine is able to think. Uh, they're just able to uh, interpret uh, commands and then to... follow a set of rules to make right. a response. Right. Uh, which is still pretty cool. And, and it doesn't it certainly doesn't mean that the Turing test is is worthless as an exercise. No, it, it is. In fact, it's improving our ability to create programs that ex- that can understand or at least respond to natural language. Natural language recognition is one of those big things where if you're really able to crack it, then you can have some amazing opportunities open up. And we've seen this recently with stuff like Siri. Oh, absolutely. Uh, being able to speak to your computer rather than having to, I mean, e- even if you could speak to your computer through a keyboard and yeah. have it understand what you're, what you're saying. I mean, like it's, it's the reason why Google spends so much time and money in its search algorithms of, of, of trying to figure out what you really mean when, when you, you search for a certain phrase. Right. Cause, Traditionally, you know, before we really got into the natural language recognition era, it meant that in order to work with a computer, you had to work with a computer on the computer's terms. You had to learn the commands. You had to learn the way to navigate a computer system in order for it to do what you wanted it to do. Mm -hmm. Once you get to a point where natural language recognition software is uh, robust enough, the computer is working on your terms. Right. You you can put in however you're thinking, like yeah. whatever what the, whatever mental exercise you've gone through to ask this computer to do something, whatever you do to kind of express a thought uh, as a command to this computer, the, the computer can then interpret uh-huh. and then respond. And, and it's not just for serving you back whatever information you happen to be looking for. It's I mean, I mean, we're talking about being able to just look at a computer and say, 
you know, I really want a graph that looks blue and has these percentages in it and is about yeah. this thing. And right. I, I and wanna, it just does it. Yeah. Like, I, I want to see what the population distribution of Atlanta is in a bar chart or something. And then it could bring it that goes up out, it. finds that information, puts Put it, it into a bar chart. And yeah. yeah, it's pretty phenomenal stuff. We see other examples of machine intelligence everywhere. Things like pattern recognition, probabilistic predictions. Uh, for example, Pandora. You know, the music genome project. It's oh, using, yeah, yeah. That's that's pattern recognition. Yeah. It's looking for uh, elements of songs that you say you like and then looking for other stuff that's not in the specific category you mentioned or the specific examples you mentioned and saying, and here's something in. else you probably will like because yeah. you like these other things that also have this stuff in it. Sure. Uh, you know, sometimes that's less functional than other times. Yeah. Uh, it makes me think of uh, Patton Oswalt has a great routine about TiVo that does the same sort of thing where he says, you know, TiVo's great. I mean, I like I love westerns, and I'll I'll have it set to TiVo a western for me, and I come back, and then there'll be all these other westerns that'll be suggested that I didn't even know about. And I think, thank you, TiVo. But then sometimes TiVo gets it wrong, and I come back, and everything has got horses in it <laughs> because westerns have horses in it. So I've got My Little Pony and cartoons with horses and unicorns and things, and I have to say, no, TiVo, that's a bad TiVo. <laughs> but TiVo says, but you said you liked horses. <laughs> Yeah. Same sort of thing. Like when you get more sophisticated, then the the computer program starts to anticipate things and makes these probabilistic models, these these models where there there are certain percentages associated with various responses. And it goes with whichever one seems to be the most prevalent, assuming it meets a threshold. If this sounds familiar to you, it's because. That's how IBM's Watson worked. Oh, right. right. Which is a really good example of natural language recognition. Absolutely. Because not only was it able to recognize natural language, it had to interpret things like wordplay. Oh, yeah. This is Jeopardy. Dude, this is the, the machine that went up on Jeopardy and beat the, the returning champions mm-hmm. um, or former champions. Uh, and, you know, if you've ever played Jeopardy or watched Jeopardy, you, you know that there are categories that depend on things like uh, puns or homonyms or other forms of wordplay. So it has to parse all of that. And that's even more complicated than just taking a simple sentence and figuring out, all right, what are the res- potential responses to whatever this 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 phrase is? So great, great example. You know, it would end up coming up with a, a potential answer. It would assign a percentage of how, quote unquote, sure it was that that was the right answer. And if the percentage was higher than its threshold, which I think was 80 percent, something like that, it would buzz in and give that as a guess. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it was wrong, but it was right a lot of the time. (laughs) So that's kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, So getting back to Eugene. Right. Gene, the mean machine, as I called him in, in my notes at one point. Uh. And of course, I'm anthropomorphizing when I say him. It's an it's an it. It's an it. Well, it has a dude name. Yeah, it has a dude name and mm-hmm. a dude persona. Yes, but it's it ultimately is an it. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi on the network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I can't fly without my portable chargers and noise-canceling headphones keeping me immersed, and I'd be lost without my smartphone. In a new place, it's my connection to the familiar. 
I rely on it to get directions around town. I use my smartphone to look up things to do or, most importantly, where to eat. In countries where I don't speak the language, my phone becomes a universal translator. And heck, it can double as a digital camera, giving me the opportunity to snap unforgettable pictures of the sights that inspire me and fill me with joy. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. A spirit of adventure lives inside of us. Nissan's SUVs have the capabilities to transform your spirit of adventure into actual rubber-meets-the-road-into-the-wild, true blue real-life adventure. You just need a Nissan and a plan. Or better yet, just a Nissan. You can hop into a Nissan Rogue and discover what comes next. Don't worry. The Nissan Rogue has your back. Class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Just climb in and go. No need to connect your phone. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the new 2024 Nissan Rogue. No matter where you roam, you'll stay connected to home. Life is one huge adventure, and every day is a little one. No matter if the ride you're on is big or small, a Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada can elevate your adventure and push your limits to something new. Your next adventure is waiting for you. Get in a Nissan SUV and go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Do you say that perhaps some of the reporting around this was per was maybe a little misleading or at least hype-ish? Well, I you know, okay... The entire Eugene Guzman chatbot sounds really cool. I haven't met it personally. Yeah, no, I, um, I haven't either. Although you can. There again, is an Internet version, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure that it's the same version that's being used in competition because I've seen some transcripts from the Internet version and they don't seem good. Yeah. At all. They seem bad. Right. I guess you'd have to talk to some actual 13 year old boys from Odessa. Actually, yeah. That well, th- th- this is part of it. Uh, you know, there, there's certainly been some some questions among uh, natural language AI enthusiasts online about whether we're really just lowering our expectations for human communication. Which, yeah, that's that's a totally different way of looking at it and a depressing one. Right. To say that, oh, well, if you come from this place and if you are of this age, then I expect you to only be able to communicate at this level. Right. Which is depressing. It's like, insulting a it, little bit. It too. certainly is. Well, but, you know, but it's a valid point, I think. I, yes. I think it's a good thing to be thinking about in this kind of situation. Um You know, beyond that, though, and I certainly don't want to downplay the... uh Apparent achievements of of its programmers, because I haven't programmed any capable chatbots today. No, it's been ever since I did. Uh, uh, But there are a few things that are just a little bit shady about the news. Um, uh, First off, the original press release, which came out of the University of Reading. Yes, I believe so. I believe so. um, Stated that a, quote, supercomputer had achieved this feat and perhaps... Charitably, it was a mistake or misunderstanding on the part of of the writer of the press release, but some skeptics have suggested that it was, in fact, a a purposeful publicity play that, in fact, worked because a whole lot of news headlines around the interwebs repeated the error very excitedly. Yes, because it was not a supercomputer. It was a computer running a piece of software. It's a program. Yes, the program that did the work. I mean, the computer just provided the horsepower. Right. Right. It's the software that did all the actual work. And it was not a supercomputer. It wasn't on a supercomputer. Little, little known fact. Supercomputers have better things to do (laughs) than run chatbot software. Generally. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We're talking about things like figuring out global weather changing change patterns and things like that, you know, or or the way that money works. <laughs> Chatbots low on their priority list. It's like number seven. Yeah, at least. Um, and and also th- this press release in question was largely a quotation from Dr. Kevin Warwick. Uh, Kevin Warwick, of course, being the fellow who organized this entire competition. Right. Um who's an engineer and a futurist um, and also the instigator and or enjoyer of a a certain amount of hype and debate about future technologies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he is obviously, 
you can tell I mean, this is the guy who elected to have surgery performed on him so he could have uh, that RFID chip. And this, call himself a cyborg. This is someone who not only embraces this these ideas of futurism, but is actively trying to promote them and get to them. That We're not even saying that that's a bad thing. What we are saying is that that may give him somewhat of a bias when it comes to proclaiming a computer software piece of computer software being uh, an amazing achievement that beat the Turing test. Oh, right. Sure. I mean, he he admits basically to, to being a provocateur. He, yeah. he says that that's really his job, you know, is to get people excited about tech and engineering and and the future. And we get that. Like yeah. that. That's we agree. That's our that. job, too. We think it's rad. We think that perhaps I don't want to put words into your mouth, Lauren. Mm-hmm. I think perhaps that there's a different way of going about it where you can still be excited, but you can be a little more grounded in the way you present things. Because I, I also think the achievement of creating a chatbot that could be uh, uh, convincing is a fantastic achievement. I mean, it's something that even, is even under any number of qualifications, incredibly challenging to do, no matter how you frame it. Um, I do think, however, that if you seem to overinflate the achievement, you run the danger of making people feel jaded about it later. Yeah, which you don't I think is not, cry computer wolf. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's one of those things where, uh, you know, you have to take the context into account. Right, right. And, and don't don't downplay the achievement, but yeah. don't sit there and say like, aha, now we have intelligent computers everywhere. That's, right. not, that's not true either. Uh, I saw uh, there's a great Wired article that specifically went into uh, kind of debunking the whole beating the Turing test thing. Right. And, and again, kind of saying the same thing we're saying, like take the context into account. And in part of that article, they uh, ended up uh, asking a cognitive scientist named Gary Marcus of NYU uh, about this. And Marcus proposed a new version of the Turing test because he says the old version's not really a measurement of machine intelligence. Uh, it, it does kind of illustrate ways of creating natural language recognition and clever ways to fool the human side. Uh huh. And that it was very valid historically at the yeah. time because, uh, you know, text, textual communication was new and exciting. And, and it was, you know, it pushed the field forward. It really did. But now we've gotten to a point where fooling the person on the other side of a keyboard is not necessarily the goal that we should be looking at. He proposes the next version of the Turing test should be that a computer software, uh, like any kind of program that wants to beat it, what it has to do is first, quote unquote, watch a movie, television show, YouTube video, something. Some and, kind of video media, yeah. And then be able to respond to questions about it. So sort of like, here, let me show you this 10-minute video on car safety and then asking questions about specifically about the video. What happened after they fastened the seatbelt? That kind of thing. Huh, uh-huh. And if the computer program is able to answer it, then that would be a much more convincing Turing test than just kind of spewing out a script. Um, sure. Which is, you know, it, it's adding another layer of difficulty on top of an already difficult task. But that's that's the whole only way you can go forward. Otherwise, oh, we're just right. going to see increasingly sophisticated chatbots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that is actually a, a very difficult and interesting problem. It, wasn't it just recently that there was a computer that we we taught, I mean, not us personally, but that humanity, some researchers somewhere, taught, taught to identify cats? Yes. Based on that was a, pictures of cats? Yeah, that was the AI program that essentially went through thousands and thousands of, uh, I think it was images and videos, and then became able to identify cats. It essentially defined what a cat was. Because no one taught it. Right. It, it learned what cats are. Yeah, based upon their appearance. On their appearance and, yeah. and can look at pictures of cats and say that is totally a cat. Yeah, essentially saying that thing that is in that video is the same as this other thing that's in this picture. That's the same as this other thing that's in this totally different video. Which sounds trivial and hilarious. And it kind of is hilarious. Also easy because, I mean, come on, everything on the Internet has cats in it. Yeah, that is that is kind of a gimme, isn't it? But but still, no, it is it is cool. <laughs> I mean, because just just that level of image recognition. I mean, being able to take an object and look at it from a different angle than you were taught, right. or uh, that's a different color, different that's a different size. size. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All, all of, of these that. things, all of these things are easy for us, hard for computers. So to, seeing something make that breakthrough is really exciting. Anyway, we thought we would take that story and kind of break it down for you guys. Explain 
how it's still cool, but maybe not as cool as the way some of the headlines are saying. Uh, right. And also say, hey, Internet journalists, um, step up your game. Yeah. <laughs> I understand that you want people to read your stuff. Oh, yeah. And, and you're under deadline pressure. And that's terrible. But that's, let's, that's let's, hard. Let's but... represent reality. Yeah. Shall we? <laughs> don't, don't, don't just don't just spit out press releases yeah. the way that you found them. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and I would be criminal to to neglect to mention Noel, uh, our producer, uh, reminded me that obviously this is a very important field of study because we want to be able to tell the difference between computers and humans when the future of Blade Runner becomes our reality and you're chasing down a replicant and you have to determine if it's actually a replicant or a human being. Very good point. So computer programmers, just make sure you don't explain sort of you know what you do if you see a turtle laying on its back and you've decided not to turn it over because that's like, that's, That's like a, our gimme. Yeah. Yeah. We got to have That's that. That's all we've got. We, yeah, we need that. So everything else, fair game. All right. So that wraps up this discussion. Guys, first of all, thank you so much, Nick, for uh, for asking us about that. Yes. And uh, if anyone else wants to ask us to talk about anything in particular, right now, I would highly suggest you use Twitter, Facebook, or Tumblr. We have the handle techstuffhsw. We will soon have an email address, but it's coming any day now. Yeah, we need. We're, we're making this transition from one kind of email server to a different one. We're getting new email addresses, and as of right now, as we're recording this podcast, I think Tech Stuff does not yet have one. Our future address will be techstuff at howstuffworks.com. So if you're listening to this in like 2017, try it. Yeah, it should be fine. But if you're listening to this the day it comes out and you wanted to send us a message and it's bouncing back, try Twitter, Facebook or Tumblr and we will get your message there. And uh, yes, we are working on this. We'll have it up as soon as we possibly can. And we'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just 348 With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for.